again, as last Sunday. Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he hold the universal faith. Which faith, unless everyone do keep whole and undefiled, without doubt he shall perish everlastingly. And the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity. And Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit, the Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Ghost uncreated, the Father unlimited, the Son unlimited, and the Holy Spirit unlimited, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet, they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated and one infinite. So likewise, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet, they are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise, the Father is Lord, the Son, Lord, and the Holy Spirit, Lord. And yet not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord, so are we forbidden by the universal religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made, nor created, nor begotten. The Holy Spirit, uh, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is before or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal and co-equal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity and trinity, the trinity and unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved, let him thus think of the trinity. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that he also believe faithfully the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance or essence of the Father begotten before the worlds, and man of the substance or essence of his mother, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man, of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, inferior to the Father as touching his manhood, who although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by assumption of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusing the substance, but by unity of person. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ, who suffered for our salvation, descended into Hades, rose again on the third day from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. At whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies, and shall give account of their own works. 
And they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. This is the universal faith, which except a man believe truly and firmly, he cannot be saved. This is the Athanasian Creed. We read it last, last time. Uh, the Athanasian Creed is not one of the um, ecumenical creeds from an ecumenical council. The Athanasian Creed was something that probably came out in about the 5th century. Um, it was not written by Athanasius. Uh, it was probably written in Latin, and Athanasius didn't write in Latin. He wrote in Greek. Also, he was before this as well. It's named the Athanasian Creed likely because it does represent Athanasius, who was one of the uh, towering figures of Trinitarian theology in the church. So probably named after him. Uh, who uses the Athanasian Creed? It is customary on Trinity Sunday to read the Athanasian Creed in the Western Church, at least in some traditions. Catholic, Anglican, a lot more high church rather than low church Western Protestant groups will often read this. And last Lord's Day was Trinity Sunday. Trinity Sunday is the week after Pentecost. And so uh, we're going to discuss the Trinity once again. For those who weren't here last time, uh, we, we started our discussion of the Trinity. And I'm, I'm not doing this alone. All right. I am barring somebody's ideas. All right. St. Gregory of Nazianzus. St. Gregory, and I'll spell this uh, for everybody so they, they can look him up. Uh, I assume you know how to spell Gregory. St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He was um, one of what are called the Capadocian Fathers. Okay? Meaning he uh, was a theologian. Uh, this he is also one of the uh, towering figures of Trinitarian theology in Christian history. Uh, he was one of three people. All right. Um, he was friends with two others, and those two were brothers. Gregory of Nyssa and Basil of Caesarea, all friends, all living in a very close proximity. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus wrote something called um, what is in modern day grouped as the five orations. Essentially, think of them as five sermons or five arguments, and they are all about the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, I, I'm not everything I'm sharing with you today is from Saint Gregory, all right? Way back. Very long time ago, um, he died in a four. Uh, excuse me, three ninety. All right. So all theological points that we will be talking today will go back at least as far as Saint Gregory. So, as as Edward says, nothing new today. Uh, this is all quite very old. So great Saint Gregory, um, as he's often called, you can just call him Gregory if you want to. If you don't want to call him a saint, but certainly a saint because he was a Christian. St. Gregory of Nazianzus uh, lived um, probably about 60 or so years, he, from about 330 to 390. I talked last time that he overlapped in life with Augustine. Um, Augustine was a little younger than him. And I was like, I really wanted to see what's the chance of them actually running into each other, and the chances of that is actually almost nil. And the reason why is Augustine, I don't know if you know, he converted late in life. He was... Uh, like 30 or so. And so being older, uh, also not being in the same area, Augustine either being in North Africa or Rome, he's not going to be in Asia Minor. And so 
did they overlap physically ever meet? I would be surprised. Um, would Augustine be familiar with his writings? I would be shocked if he wasn't, because he was very important. Gregory died shortly after, just a few years after the Second Ecumenical Council, all right, which Augustine affirmed all right, and wrote himself a book on the Trinity. Um, Gregory presided over part of that council. All right, so Augustine certainly would be friends uh, with the ideas of Gregory of Nazianzus. So last Lord's Day, and this, by the way, would, was probably written right before that council. So these would be written in about 380. Right, so that's now you know how old these are. So five orations. The first oration we talked about, he made some points. The first one was primarily not about defining things about God. The first oration was, was primarily about theology and thinking about theology. And who should do theology? We talked about this last time. He said some things. He said, first of all, that um, you have to be a certain kind of person to do theology. Right? Not everybody should do theology, and certainly not everybody should do theology all the time. What he means is, is theology is a hard thing to do. It's a hard mental exercise, all right? Uh, now, we as, um, oh, this is a part of the low church tradition, I think. We tend to be a little bit more egalitarian in terms of who we think should be doing serious Bible studies and serious theology. Uh, meaning, but we don't, I'm not going to try to restrict you to from doing theology because, okay, you don't have a seminary degree or something like that, right? I'm not going to try to do that. Uh, we are actually very much along the thinking along the lines of, actually, this would be something that would be good for you to do. Pick up some good theology books and do it. But he is right, all right? Theology, not everybody is ready for theology, all right? When you're four, you're not ready for a lot of types of theology, right? When you're eight, also not ready for a lot of types of theology. When you're 20, also probably not ready for a lot of types of theology. It takes some time to, to learn things. And so it's not necessarily for everybody, all right? And, and certainly, depending on your level of education, maybe not, and just mental maturity, maybe not. But also a certain type of person, not only educationally, but also in terms of holiness, all right? If you're going to approach the deep things of God, you should do so reverently and in godliness. It is not something to be taken lightly. Now, something else he did say about theology, which is very important, all right? Theology should not be something we do all of the time. And by theology, he means let's sit down and, and, and parse through those hard questions. He's like, no, this is actually not something we should be doing all the time. What we should be doing all the time is we should always be keeping God in mind. We should always be meditating on God. We should always be keeping God in remembrance. Think of it more as adoration and worship. The act of theology, sometimes. The act of thinking about God, constantly. This is where man should be. And also theological argumentation is not for amusement. Um, some, some of us find theological argumentation and reading interesting in, in a sense, amusing because it is enjoyable. But it is not for amusement. It is not for show. It is not for, um, it's, it's, it's not something, it's not like a movie. This is not what we come for. We come for it very seriously. 
That was the 27th oration. If you want to read it, by the way, you can totally get a copy of this book. It is re- relatively easily priced. Not many notes, except for scripture footnotes. Now, he is insane in terms of the number of scriptures, uh, passages that he actually references. Uh, like, for example, in Oration 3, uh, which we'll be discussing today, some of today, uh, he references 100, about 130 different scripture passages just in that one little oration. Um, so scripture is a very large part of this, um, but there's also a good bit of thinking in terms of the implication of, all right, what would it mean, as we'll discuss today, for God to be outside of time? So in Oration 27 and in Oration 28, all right, and so these are the first two of the five orations, all right, so we'll ultimately discuss um, 27, 28, 29. That's today, hopefully. 30 and 31, all right? One of the things he starts with is there's something about the nature of God that is ultimately unknowable. As a matter of fact, there's a lot about the nature of God that is unknowable. If we think about what really is God, his answer is going to be, you don't know. I don't know. And one reason why you don't know and I won't know is because God is completely different than us. He is completely other. And for us to think, I know what the stuff is that God is made of, is just pride and stupidity. No, we can't ultimately know those things. Does God reveal himself? Yes. He said the prophets were the luckiest, happiest men in the world. Because God actually revealed things through them. And so does God reveal things? Yes. Can we know things about God's attributes? Yes, as the scriptures would say. Can we know about God's omnipotence? Yes. We can just simply see that in nature. Gregory would, um, Gregory affirms all these things. Um, but what Gregory is saying, in God in and of himself and what he actually is, you can't know it. And it's just speculation for you to try. So don't even. What he does attempt to do when it, when it talks about the Trinity is there are some revealed things. And ultimately, you take what you've got revealed, you think through the implications of those things, and that's essentially how you build a doctrine of the Trinity. And so he begins really doing that in Oration 28 and in 29 today. Uh, I really did want to read some of Augustine. Um, Last time, and I was going to start with it this time, but I actually do want to wait. Um, Let's go through with some of the things that he discussed last time. You might remember. First of all, God's nature is very noble. We just discussed, we just discussed that. The next thing, all right, is this. We're going to have two images, one, one vertical, one horizontal, all right? If we think of God here, okay? Think of the vertical dimension, and this is not from Gregory. This is just how I'm going to organize the information, all right? And you are here, all right? Here is... Okay. Think of the vertical dimension. Here is you, and you're trying to contemplate this thing. All right. What can you see of this thing? He really he starts with the idea of the averted figure. Meaning, if you think about Sinai, and you've got Moses going up to Sinai, does God is is God visible ultimately to Moses in his fullness and his greatness? The answer is, as we know, no. Moses only sees the averted figure of God. 
And if you think about the distance between God and man, it is vast, all right? Uh, of course, this is just a whiteboard, but a very vast distance. What do we see of God? Can we see all the way up to God? No, actually. And if you think about, here's God and here's man. What about other beings that God has created? Where are animals? Well, animals are going to be down here. Where are angels going to be? Pretty close to the man. Yeah, they're going to be here, right? They're going to be, all right. Here's their, here's their wings, right? <laughs> Because ultimately, one of the primary distinctions between God and all things that are not God is created and created, all right? These angels might see God better than we do, and probably do a little bit, because they share some of the characteristics of God that we do not, all right? Uh, they are more towards the incorporeal realm, for example. They might see more, but still, do they see God's nature? According to Gregory, no. Not even they can. Because they are ultimately also incredibly distant from God in terms of nature. Okay? So that's part of this God is unknowable thing. We only see, essentially, very distance. All right, pictures of who God actually is, which, of course, means it's very difficult to have a doctrine of God unless he reveals something. And speaking of, let's do some reading. If you would, turn to the Gospel of John. Some of what Gregory talks about is rooted in logic and philosophy. Most of what he's rooted in is scripture. So if we think of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, this is a good place to start. Because Gregory would pull a great deal of things from this area. John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, and that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. This image. No one has ever seen God. And for Gregory, that means Satan. That means all the angelicos. No one has really ever understood God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So let's start the second part of our image. There's God. 
this right here represents the uh, distance between God and man. This represents God and his relationship to time and creation. All right, this is a, uh, a fat arrow. All right, not as a single line arrow. Because in, in much of modern physics, there's a lot of people in modern physics that say the same thing. There's a relationship between space and time and matter. All right? There's a relationship between these things. As we were reading in John, all right, as we we're reading in John, this started in time. All things were created through the Christ, right? Okay? So this started at a point in time, which means it's matter, space, time, all related. If God created matter and God created space, then God created time. And therefore, God is outside of time. All right? This will be a very important part of the Trinitarian discussions. Now, one thing we talked about last time, one of the arguments he uses, uh, goes all the way back at least to, to Aristotle, and is one also that we would use. Meaning, this right here, all right, whenever this point was that God created, all right, this point here starts the movement of time and matter, right? This point here starts it. If this point, where does it come from? Well, it comes from this point. It comes from this point. It comes from this point. All right? So where does this come? It comes from God. Where does his movement come from? And the answer is it doesn't. Ultimately, he is what is called the first mover. He is called the prime mover. This goes all the way back to Aristotle. All right? And Gregory is using it. There cannot be, all right, an infinite, infinite regression of things. All right? Ultimately, there is, if you think about if there's a ball moving... What moved the ball? Well, the person moved the ball. What moved the person? Ultimately, you must get back to one thing that existed that it itself did not need to be moved. That is the thing that we call God. And also, he also depends quite heavily on the argument for design. And this, you should totally go read Gregory. It's, it's interesting how much he uses it. But we're going to jump right now into some of the ideas in oration number 29. Okay, what is going on in terms of God in relationship to time and matter? Somebody tell me, what is the relationship between God the Father and the Son? How does Scripture describe this? In other words, other than Father and Son. Does anybody know of any words? Begotten. Begotten, okay. So... God, who I will not pictorially represent, because that's likely blasphemy. <laughs> However, here's the sun. Okay? Head, body. I won't draw everything. All right? Now, before time and before matter and before space, did Christ have a body? <clears throat> no. I mean, there was, there was no matter. All right? So, so Christ would not have had a body. Now, you said begetting, all right? Begetting. So the relationship between God and the Son is, all right, a father-son relationship, okay? This is very important, all right? This is super important in the Trinitarian discussion. What is the relationship between these two? Is it a creation or is it a begetting? And the way the scriptures refer to it is 
Primarily, they talked about the Son as, who is he? He is the Son of God. He is begotten of the Father. All right? Now, this is an analogy that, that, uh, that Gregory Lee likes to use. All right? And so let's, let's go with uh, another person. Okay? All right. This is Adam. All right? This is Adam. Uh, well, let's put Eve in here. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right? I assume Eve wore a dress. Sure, why not? All right? Now, Adam, when he had a child, all right? We had a child. Let's, uh, let's, let's draw this out, all right? Let's talk about three, three of the children, okay? Cain. Abel. And Seth, right? Now, unfortunately, we know that. <laughs> Not relevant technically for the discussion, though. Okay. So, here's the analogy. What's the relationship between Adam and Cain? Father, son. Adam begat. Okay? When Adam begat Cain, all right, did he create, did he give birth to something of a different species? Give birth to a dog. No, he did not beget of a different species. What about Abel? Also human. Okay, Seth? Also human. Alright? Scriptural language, right? So much of it is, of course, well, not so much. All of it is for us to understand. If you use this language of humans, and you use this language of God and his relation to the Son, it's meaning to teach you something. Which is, even though, now, Adam, was Adam begotten? Hmm? What's that? Okay. So he was, Eve also came, came weird, all right? But everything after him, even though he was not begotten, all right? He was not begotten. He was the son of God in the sense of he was created by God, for sure. But he was not begotten. But when he did beget, he beget something of the same nature as him. Okay? Same here. When scripture uses the term begetting to describe the relationship between the father, all right, and the son, it's trying to tell you something, which is simply that they are of the same nature. If you read the creeds, how are you going to say that word? You're either going to say substance or you're going to say essence. But that right there is one of the most crucial things in the doctrine of the Trinity. Understanding this. Begetting, all right? Begetting begets a thing like itself in terms of nature. Begetting begets a thing like itself in terms of nature. Are they using similar language? Are they different persons? Yes. Are they the same nature? Yes. All right? So, point number one that Gregory is going to want to make, all right, is whenever God begets the Son, all right, he begets something of the exact same nature. The people he's arguing with are arguing with, well, he begets or creates something that is actually in nature very different 
all right? Or maybe at least a tiny bit different. And Gregory of Nazianzus says, no, no, that's not, that's not how begetting works, all right? They're of the same nature, all right? Are they different persons? Yes. But are they the same nature? Also, yes. You cannot break that up. That messes things up. Now, um, let's read another piece of scripture. We will, uh, we'll stick with John. If you would turn to John 15. Jesus in John 15 is talking to his disciples about various things. In John 15, 26, he talks about, okay, he talks about the Spirit. Okay. This particular verse is going to have uh, a significant effect on the language of how the Trinitarians us, describe the relationship between God and the Spirit. Or, excuse me, I should say Father and Spirit. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Now, one thing that we read in the Athanasian Creed, all right, is it was very, it was, there's a lot of redundancies, you probably noticed as I was reading, all right, a lot of redundancies. Uh, one of the places where it's not quite as redundant, he's like, okay, what's the relationship between the Father and the Son? It's not creating, it's begetting, and it's not proceeding. What's the relationship between the Father and Spirit, all right? Let's go to the image of wind, all right? Why? Because the Hebrew and Greek word for spirit are also the same word for wind, all right? So what is the relationship between the Father and the Spirit? It is not begetting, all right? It is proceeding, all right? Proceeding, and it comes from this this verse right here. So you've got ultimately at this point a triune God, all right? Now, Now, let's go back to John 1. For a good Trinitarian, all right, for a good Trinitarian, at what point in time did the Father beget the Son, all right? Well, if we look here in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So... All things, now, we don't know at this point yet that the word becomes the son and is made flesh. That's a few verses later. But we know, because we have read ahead, right, that this son is also the word, okay? Now, what does it say there? All things were created by the word, all right? All things were created, which means that time, space, matter, because they're all related. They all started because the Son created them, all right? Which essentially means what? The Son is outside of time until he becomes incarnate. The Son is outside of time, pre-incarnate Christ, completely, as is the Spirit, all right? The Son creates time when he creates matter and he creates space. So what is the temporal relationship between the Son and the Spirit and the Father? And the answer is they are all co-eternal. 
The Son was eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit was eternally proceeding from the Father. God did not create a thing and call it the Word or the Son and therefore start time. And then the Son started creating all the other things. It's not the biblical picture, not the Trinitarian picture. The Father beget the Son before time. And then time begins when the Son creates. Okay? You with me on this? Right. Yes. And Gregory knows this. He's like, it's. Here's the problem. All right. Here's the problem. We are entirely bound by time. We know nothing other than space, matter, and time. Nothing. We don't know. We cannot directly experience. Maybe in the future. Maybe after the resurrection. Maybe. All right? We hope so. We will certainly know more. All right? Certainly know more. Will we be able to see this as it truly is? Madzianzas? He's, I, I don't know. I really don't know. This is all we know. Because this is all we know, that's all we can describe. He knows it's a problem. All right? He's like, I, can't, I cannot describe it, except by using temporal, temporal terminology. Because that, I'm human. And that's all we ultimately know how to talk about. So, some things, some points he makes that that are all related to this. First of all, the Trinity is related eternally. There is not a Father or a God, and then ultimately, at some point, God becomes Father because he begets Son. No. There is Father, and he is Father eternally. And there is Son, and he is Son eternally. And there is Spirit, and he is Spirit eternally. Okay? So all of this is ultimately eternal. God transcends time. All right? He like some of the words that you'll see if you read Gregory. They're great. All right? Uh, here's a good one. Unoriginate. All right? Unoriginate. What would that even mean? Okay, so, yeah. Now, origin is a, a starting place time, right? What is, what is in this, what is unoriginate? Right? What is unoriginate? Well, the Father is. Now, for Gregory, all right, if you read his language, and this is one of the things he's arguing with, because the Father is unoriginate, all right? What about the Son? Is the Son unoriginate? No. He's originate of the Father. And some people will say, there's a whole lot of discussion about this, and you should totally read it. He, 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 the Son is not unoriginate. The Son is his origin. He is begotten by the Father. 
at one time eternally. I mean, it's way according to this stuff. But is the sun unoriginate? And some people would say, well, therefore, if you, if you were to say the sun is unoriginate, excuse me, if you were to say the sun is originate of God, therefore he must be of a different nature. And the answer is no. See, you know, image three, right? No. Is, is this guy unoriginate? No, he's originate. Is he of a different nature? No, he's of the same nature. So, in other words, Gregory, when the way he'll talk about things is he'll say, okay, who is the spirit unoriginate? No, the spirit also proceeds from the Father. When did this happen? In eternity past. Knowing that past is a word that doesn't really apply to the Trinity because it's about time. It is ultimately hard to talk about things that are completely outside of our area. One of, my, one of my favorite phrases from it related to this, and God transcends the sources of time are not subject to time. Amen. With you on that. All right. So when we talk about Father, all right, we talk about Father, interesting point. The term Father is not a, a discussion of nature. The whole, the Father-Son discussion is a discussion of relation. These are relational terms, not ultimately nature terms. All right. Is this what we're talking about? Beginning, proceeding. I guess I should write that up here. All right? All relational terms related to father. I'm sure you've got it all. Any questions? Yeah. Sometimes um, when we start to talk to this about people who are asking, up and they they say, isn't this whole thing a little bit too complex and far fetched? And wouldn't it be just so much simpler if there's God? That's it. Mm-hmm. And the Son and the Spirit are sent by Him to do stuff, but they're not God. And oftentimes people um, push back against true theology because it's difficult yeah. you know but if we think about any subject on the earth that's difficult but you know like the depths of the oceans we really don't know we know some stuff about it but it's too deep it's too hard to get there we can't understand it all but we acknowledge it. it's a thing it's, it's real we just say we don't know about or you know whatever black hole yeah. we understand stuff about it but not well God is the creator of all those things we should have in our minds it should be completely normal as Gregory is pushing for for us to say there's just stuff that's beyond our ability to understand it's complex accept it yeah. You know. And I've told people too, like, like, not to insult your intelligence or anything, but you know, anybody that I ever talked to is not among the world's intellectual elite. You know, with a few exceptions. Those <laughs> <laughs> present, of course. But um, you know, like, I think if, if you, know, you say, well, this just doesn't make sense. Like, well, if it all made sense to you, wouldn't you be kind of on the line with God and? Wouldn't you hope that God would be smarter than you? Like, I really hope God's smarter than me. Like, wait, he's, he's not 
like how that is. I like how that is up there, even though the distance would be, you know, go on to infinity. But I wish we had a larger month. Honestly, <laughs> like it'd be how fantastic. Much higher are the angels, right? Sometimes people kind of think the angels are are closer to the God side, and man is way down here. No, they're created too. They don't know. They, I mean, the scriptures say angels long to know about this. They didn't know about. Um, on a different note, um, this is killing me inside, but um, are you going to get into Billy O'Kane a bit? Uh, I don't exp- Not today. Okay. Yeah, not today. <laughs> the Athanasian Creed says that, as we read, as you sure you noticed, that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Right. John here... Uh, in 15 says the spirit just proceeds from the father, right? Um, depending on what version, uh, you know, there's basically one difference between the Nicene Creed that is read in the East and read in the West. And it is, do you add and the son at that exact point in terms of proceeding? And so I I'm, imagine we will talk about it some, at some point, but no, not at this point. But it, it's a thing. <laughs> so he's referring this is uh you'll see this in the lit literature <laughs> not confused with statement of uh Kulmus, right? this particular debate is due to say the father um excuse me the spirit proceeds from the father and Son. It just means and son in Latin. And so instead of I mean, think of, let's 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 talk about a debate. We'll call it the and son debate. That does not sound nearly as cool as the we're going to talk about the filioque debate. All right. And it was in the West, which spoke Latin, that's Latin. It was in the West that added that, filioque. So it makes sense that it would actually be a Latin term to use. And so yeah. It's just is it's it just means when you read John, should you read and the Son when it says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father or not? Uh, yes, sir. I'll save it for when we talk about it. Go on okay. Around the okay. All right. So there's other things in, in this, this selection. Um, now, I'll, I'll tell you, if you buy it or just read it online, it's, it's not like um, just, you know, super easy reading. All right. It, it's 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 difficult, but I believe you can. At least most of you can do it. Ninety-nine percent of you can do it. All right. Totally read it. All right. Totally read it. If you if you want to if you want to go through the I, I'm I'm not yeah I'm not pointing fingers or looking at any particular direction at this point. But yeah, you totally do. Um, it's not easy reading, but it, it's worth it. You will find a mixture of, if you read it, a, wow, this is really annoying logic talk, with, wow, this is amazing rhetoric, right? Um, He whom presently 
you scorn, because this all is, is a debate with some heretics, ultimately. He whom presently you scorn was once transcendent even over even you. He who is presently human was in composite. He remained what he was, what he was not, he assumed. And this is language you'll, you'll often say. When, what does it mean for the, the Son of God all right, to become human? All right? For the proper Trinitarian theology, all right, it's not that, okay, let's subtract God parts out of the Son so we can put human stuff in. All right? He remained God. All right? He remained God. But he assumed, meaning he took upon himself, all right? He took upon himself also the nature of man. And so if we think about, Billy, that's, if we think about the sun, all right? The sun is eternal. The sun is not time-bound until the sun becomes time-bound, okay? In his nature of a thing that we cannot understand. But, in time, assumes the form of a man, submits himself within time and space. And does he stay a man? Does he lose his manhood? No. Excuse me, yes, he stays a man, all right? Is it the same, un, you know, is it the same man is it the exact same flesh untransformed as he ascends? No, it is transformed, right? Paul talks about this. Does Christ retain his body? Absolutely. It is a transformed body. It is a heavenly body. It is similar to what we will have at the resurrection. But at some point, the begotten God, who is outside of our physicality and time and all that steps into time ties himself up in that time because he ties himself up ultimately in our physicality as he becomes as he becomes a man and then they murdered him he remained what he was what he was not, he assumed. No because is required for his existence in the beginning. For what could account for the existence of God? But later he came into being because of something. Namely, your salvation. Yours. Who insult him and despise his Godhead for that very reason? Because he took on your thick corporeality. Through the medium of the mind he made dealings with the flesh, being made that God on earth which is man. Man and God blended. They became a single whole, the stronger side predominating, in order, that I might may, in order that I might be made God in the same extent that he was made man. That's the doctrine of theosis. He was begotten, yet he was already begotten of a woman. And yet, she was a virgin. That it was from a woman makes it human. That she was a virgin makes it divine. On earth he has no father, but in heaven, no mother. All this is part of his Godhead. He was carried in the womb, but acknowledged by a prophet as yet unborn himself, who leaped for joy at the presence of the word, for whose sake he had been created. 
He was wrapped in swaddling bands, but at the resurrection he unloosed the swaddling bands of the grave. He was laid in a manger, manger, but was extolled by angels, disclosed by a star, and adored by magi. Why do you take offense at what you see instead of attending to its spiritual significance? He was exiled into Egypt, but he banished the Egyptian idols. He had no former beauty for the Jews, but for David he was fairer than the children of men. And on the mount he shines forth, becoming more luminous than the sun, to reveal the future mystery. As man he was baptized, but he absolved sins as God. He needed no purifying rites himself. His purpose was to hallow water. As man he was put to the test, but as God he came through victorious. Yes, bids us be of good cheer, because he conquered the world. He hungered, yet he fed thousands. Indeed, he is living heavenly bread. He thirsted, yet he exclaimed, Whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Indeed, he promised that believers would become fountains. He was tired, yet he is the rest of the weary and the burdened. He was overcome by heavy sleep, yet he goes lightly over the sea, rebukes winds, and relieves the drowning Peter. He pays tax, yet he uses a fish to do it. Indeed, he is emperor over those who demand the tax. He is called a Samaritan, demonically possessed, but he rescues man who came down from Jerusalem and fell among thieves. Yes, he is recognized by demons, drives out demons, drowns a deep legion of spirits, and sees the prince of demons falling like lightning. He is stoned, yet not hit. He prays, yet he hears prayer. He weeps, yet he puts an end to weeping. He asks where Lazarus is laid. He was man, yet he raised Lazarus. He was God. He is sold, and cheap was the price, 30 pieces of silver. silver. Yet he buys back the world at the mighty cost of his own blood. A sheep he is led to slaughter, yet he shepherds Israel, and now the whole world is well. A lamb he is dumb, yet he is word. Proclaimed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is weakened, wounded, yet he cures every disease and every weakness. He is brought up to the tree and nailed to it, yet by the tree of life he restores us. Yes, he saves even a thief crucified with him. He wraps all the visible world in darkness. He has given vinegar to drink, gall to eat. And who is he? Why, one who turned water into wine who took away the taste of bitterness, who is all sweetness and desire. He surrenders his life, yet he has power to take it again. Yes, the veil is rent, for things of heaven are being revealed, rocks split, and dead men have an earlier awakening. He dies, but he vivifies, and by death destroys death. He is buried, yet he rises again. He goes down to Hades, yet he leads souls up, ascends to heaven, and will come to judge quick and dead. And to probe discussions like these. If the first set of expressions starts you going astray, the second set takes your error away. So, great sermon. Totally recommend you read it. Good edition, but you can find it online for free. It's 1051. Let's be dismissed. If you want to talk about this more later, let me know. And we'll discuss. Roy? Will you please pray for us? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing us here to learn about you, Lord, and to, to worship you. Thank you for Mr. Eric's preparation and for always pointing us back to you and your power, Lord. I ask that you would bless us as we go to worship, Lord, and 